to WRBH Radio 88.3 FM. This is your host of Dinner Party, Chef Amy Sins. And today, uh, live on Zoom in the studio with me, I have Scott Maurer with Louisiana Oysters. And I just had to get him on the show. Y'all, I met him early COVID whenever he delivered some oysters to my house. And I learned all kinds of new things about oysters. And I said, now it's time to get him on the show and get him talking to everybody. So how are you doing today, Scott? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm so glad you could join us. I know you were out harvesting oysters this morning. Yeah, yeah, it was really windy out there, but we just got to do what we got to do. Um, we're just very thankful to actually be selling oysters again and offering them. What we have is just a few remnants left from Hurricane Ida, but we're starting to, to harvest them and get them back into the city and let people enjoy them. And I know there are so many of us who are connoisseurs of oysters and we're starting to realize that the salinity matters and the size of the oyster matters and the time and when it was harvested matters. And, you know, there are a lot of us out there too who just go to our local restaurant and we eat what they give us and we enjoy every bite of it. So how should consumers be thinking about approaching oysters when they're going to restaurants and they're going to eat them? So the first thing that I like to, um, I guess, recommend is to know your source. And that's one good thing about buying farm direct, you know, from us or from another grower is, you know, that I personally harvested that my name's on it. And if you're going to eat something raw, you kind of want to know where it comes from, you know, so that that adds a little bit of credibility and you know exactly where you know, your oyster comes from, you know, secondly, we grow them in the floating cages. So that oyster has been in our possession, basically from the time it was in the larval stage. Um, so that, that really, you know, lends itself and, and, and really explains like, you know, like where it comes from. So you're getting the taste of place. You're getting that, that hands-on, um, you know, cultured product and fr from from the ground up, you know, fr from infancy. So that's where it kind of all starts. The fact that we raise them in the floating cages creates a lot different product than your normal oyster that was raised on the bottom. Oysters eat algae. Most of your photosynthesis happens in the top two feet of the water. So by raising the oysters to the top, it puts them in the best food source, creates a cleaner flavor. Um, and then we can also really pinpoint when we harvest those. You mentioned salinity. Um, everybody has their favorite range and whatever you like is, is what's good for you, but we're able to actually measure it. So the oysters today, they were at 23 parts per thousand. So you don't have to say, well, are they salty or are they salty, salty or kind of <laughs> sweet? You know, we can actually measure it and you can start to understand what your flavor is the salt content that you like. What do you think whenever you're you're looking at that and as somebody who maybe they go, I don't know, to the, 
I don't know, to the West Coast and they're like, oh, these are not very salty. Uh, you know, these aren't my kind of oysters. How are, is, what is the range that we should be thinking about so that we know what our salt level is? So when they say it's 23 parts per thousand, we can translate that to, yeah. is it saltier than a crawfish boil? Is it? <laughs> well, how spicy is too spicy? You know, there, there's there's that whole range there. So a lot of people like food that's a little bit more mild. If you have an oyster that's sweeter, it lends itself to different sauces. But we're at least able to communicate that. So if I call up a chef and I'm like, hey, our, you know, the, the salt's at 10, which would be on the lower end of the scale, that chef then knows what type of preparation and, and, and can can start preparing that in their head before the rest the, before the oysters actually even make it to the restaurant if i call in and say hey we're at 32 well that's going to be a, a very salty oyster and maybe a mignonette to kind of balance that out would be you know more applicable so it's just it's just kind of elevating the game and allowing um just giving a little bit of knowledge basically ahead of the harvest to know what you want and i recommend trying them all and then you know what what zone you know you like neil whenever you're saying okay well they could go 10 or they could go 32 is are the 10 oysters more a uh, cooking oyster are they more does does or is it sure. is that too just preference <laughs> it, it's, it's it's just preference you know i mean if you like it i love it you know so um you know, I personally like a 24. That to me is the Goldilocks zone. You know, you're 22, 24, 26 in that range. You know, that's that to me is a really good oyster that you don't even want to put anything on. Um, I do enjoy mignonettes. Uh, it's just different. I am, I enjoy the full spectrum. Uh, it's just, like I said, it's just, it's, it's, it's a tool. It's knowledge that we didn't necessarily have or measure previously and now we're able to i feel like we've come a long way as diners and and chefs and even like home dinner party enthusiasts where we used to say okay well these farm fresh greens came from such and such farm well now we're like oh and these oysters are salinity of 23 part we're gonna start yeah. sounding like we really know our business when we, we have guests over we do, for <laughs> We absolutely do. Well, whenever you're harvesting these oysters in, and you're talking about the baskets and I've seen this whole setup and it's, they come, they start as little bitty, bitty, bitty baby oysters, yeah. right? We're not just um, thinking about, uh, you know, the TV shows that you've seen where the guys with the big claw just scraping the ground. These, you are, you are growing these. These are your little yeah. babies. They are, they are. They have my eyes. If you've ever seen any of the oysters, you know, people <laughs> say they have my eyes. So, uh, no, I mean, there's, we put a lot of care and a lot of effort into these. Um, we've actually set up uh, Steve Pollock with Triple N Oysters. Uh, he used to be a grower and he has pretty much just transitioned into being just a hatchery. These oysters are actually spawned in Baton Rouge. So there's a lot of science that goes into this. Um, by spawning in Baton Rouge, by being that far inland, he's protected from 
water quality issues, as well as weather events. And we were actually able to keep larva alive in the tanks through Hurricane Ida off of generators running out the back of my truck. <laughs> um, so that's that kind of adds a little bit, you know, I, I kind of get tired of being called resilient, but it adds, you know, another level of resiliency to the industry and allows us to keep going in the face, you know, of, of disasters like that. But yeah, they so they start up there. We set the, the oysters on little tiny grains of sand that are about 300 microns. So like a quarter of a millimeter um, is when I take possession of them, you know, at, at that point. So it's it's definitely not your grandfather's oyster. There's there's a whole lot of science, a whole lot of care that goes into it. And I really think that it does translate onto the dinner plate. Now, you're putting these in baskets, and if we were to describe to people, because this is radio, you know, the oyster basket, is it the size of the, a laundry basket, is it the size of a giant suitcase, is it, are we talking about the basket of a hot air balloon, you know, yeah. how big is this basket, and how many of those little baby oysters are going in it at first? I, th I think a laundry basket's a pretty good analogy. That's only like maybe say six inches tall. You know, it's 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 a it's a long flat cage. There's a lot of different types of growing equipment. That's but that's the basic one. You know that, that we use. And when you first start out, I mean, there could be fifty thousand small oysters in a small basket like that. As they grow, we split them out. And they, the, the mesh size on the basket will get larger to allow, you know, for a little bit more flow. Um, and of course, you know, when, when the oysters are only two millimeters big, you have to have something that, you know, a, a, a basket the size of basically window screen to hold it in, you know, but that's going to start getting algae and seaweed and stuff like that, you know, clogging it up soon. So you want to split them out into larger and larger mesh the fast, you know, as fast as you can to create more flow. And, you know, with more flow, you got more grow. And by doing this and by protecting these oysters, it take a normal oyster takes about three years on the bottom to come to market size. And there's a lot of, you know, I, I guess, uh, you know, negative viewpoints of farmed seafood but farmed oysters are on a whole different level. It's actually Monterey Bay Aquarium rates it as the most sustainable protein, you know, that, 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 is, that is being grown. And part of that's because, you know, an oyster that is, that is in that basket is protected, you know? So a farmed oyster is a happier oyster. He doesn't have drumfish picking on him, doesn't have stone crabs and, you know, all these other predators picking on him. The oyster that's on the bottom exposed to all the elements has to grow armor. And that's why it takes that much longer to build up that shell. And what we like to say is that we grow meat, not shell. And by doing it that way and by protecting that oyster, we can get that oyster to market as soon as six to nine months. Now, so this, so yes, they are your little babies, right? It's nine months, yeah. you're bringing these babies to market, but we're starting on a flat cage and we're changing that mesh so someone is is hand separate so there's been an oyster farmer or oyster fisherman i'm not sure what term you use but somebody has has touched that oyster and moved that oyster and inspected that oyster how many times during the process 
we go out there once a week. So we have to, even if we're not, you know, splitting out the cage or reallocating the oysters, you know, into a new home, we're still going out there on the farm and we have to flip the cages over. Um, there's different dry cycles you can do. There's, we have to control fouling on the cages. So we're at least out there inspecting and, and doing something with those oysters once a week. So by the time that gets to market, I mean, we've, we've handled it quite a few times. And the other thing that that does, it helps us to keep, you know, tabs on, you know, what the, what's going on in the water. If oysters are starting to die, well, why is that? Are we getting too much fresh water? Is there something coming down from the bay? Has there been some sort of spill around? But like, you know, we have, we have constant contact. We're inspecting it every single week until it comes to market. And, you know, those oysters that are on the bottom, uh, I have sacrificed many an oyster knife to a Gulf oyster. Uh, Some of those I have, I have fought tooth and nail and scratched because that oyster was not going to beat me. I was going to beat it. Right. But your oysters are, are so easy to open, I guess, because they don't have all those layers of, you know, environmental uh, fighting that they're having to do on the floor. But how does what you do change the shape of the oyster or the shell of the oyster, that kind of thing? So the interesting thing, one of the, one of the other advantages of growing the oysters in a floating cage at the surface is that the, the natural rocking of the cage by the waves causes the oyster shell to basically self-prune. So as oysters start growing irregularly, as they knock together in that basket, it kind of smooths off those rough edges and it causes a really deep cup that holds a lot of the oyster liquor. So our oysters tend to have a flat top shell with a deeper bottom cup. Um, And if you're going to shuck them into a gumbo, you like that liquor. You like having that. And personally, I, a lot of people will pour off that, that first, you know, bit of liquor, but to me, it's like kissing the ocean on the mouth. Like I really want to take, before I even eat the oyster, I take that first sip of liquor just to kind of get the feel of what was going on in the ocean that day, because that's, what's so great about an oyster is once you pull it from the water, it closes and it's, it's kind of like a shutter drop it. You know, it's like, that's the snapshot of what was going on in the Gulf of Mexico that day. And it just really, it, it, any oyster that I eat from anywhere takes me to that coast. And that makes perfect sense because there are sometimes that I'll, I'll taste an oyster and I'm like, it does, it's like clean seawater or, and you can smell the, I I don't know, you can smell the ocean. It's all the things that it does. It brings you back to childhood when you're running across the beach and you smell and you, you hear all these things. But, you know, I imagine that at certain times of the year that is going to taste different. What are some of the flavors that you used to describe it? Like if you're drinking wine or you, you know, there, it's more than just the salinity, there's minerality, there's all this stuff. How are you describing the flavors of that, that oyster liquor in the oyster? So it's interesting that you bring up wine because the term that you use in wine is terroir, how the, the ground will impart different flavors into the grapes. 
with oysters, we use the term marewar, which is, you know, basically what is in that ocean and, and in that water that creates that, that flavor at that, at any given time in Louisiana, we have the ability to make a really unique marewar because of all of our inland water bodies. We have so much marsh grass. So it's not just, you know, a flat tasting, astringent, salty ocean water. Um, one of the things that this oyster does is it grows a, a little bit larger eye. The eye on an oyster um, in, is basically what a scallop is. In a different shellfish, just, just that eye is the adductor muscle. To me and others have said that that kind of can have a taste of crab almost. So that's you get a little bit of sweetness from, from the eye right there. Another thing that tends to um, contribute could be the types of algae that are in the water. There's lots of different types of phytoplankton that can contribute different flavors. In the summertime, I get a almost a spicy watercress. Okay. You know, it, it, at times um, there is like wild garlic that kind of comes in. And you know, these these flavors change through the course of the year a little bit. But those are some of the main, you know, top flavors that we see kind of coming up again and again, you know, ab above and beyond the salt. Now, as as someone who is, you know, growing oysters, harvesting oysters, you know, farming oysters, are you starting to think about how you can play with the environment around you or are you trying to utilize the environment that's there like do you want to plant more marsh grass because it can help the coast but it also is going to change the flavor of your oyster what's going through your mind in that process i have so many ideas that i would <laughs> absolutely just love to play with and do but we've had a really rough four years from water quality issues you know i mean the disappearing coast, you know, we're, we're on the forefront of that down here in Grand Isle and Hurricane Ida hit us really hard. So there's a lot of things that I would like to do. But first on my priority list is just survive. So if I can grow any kind of an oyster just in the ambient conditions, that's my first goal. Um, and we really need to get like a profitable year under our belt. Um, there's no I've never been in any kind of a business where sales is not the issue. Like we just can't produce enough. And that's what we really just need to kind of focus on. But you really did bring up a huge rabbit hole as far <laughs> as like, you know, there, there's a whole without giving too much away. You know, if, if we spawn these oysters in Baton Rouge, we're able to make our own seawater. You know, we make our own seawater. If you make your own seawater, you could flavor your own seawater. So there's a whole, you know, project on post-harvest. We've actually done like a raw smoked oyster by creating, you know, smoky environments, you know, flavors in the, you know, seawater that we created. But like that's, that's fun stuff, but it doesn't pay the bills right now. Right. So I just want to get more oysters out there the benefits of having oysters out there whether they're in cages or on the bottom 
they're a keystone species. The amount of shrimp, the little baby shrimp that are taking cover in our oyster baskets right now is incredible. We have all kinds of little crabs coming out of there. Um, just the fact that the oyster, the, the baskets themselves are on long lines, they're right by this island. And if you if you look at the waves coming in, the cages themselves will like attenuate the wave action to save the coast. So just by doing things in a normal and boring way, we're, <laughs> we're, we're, we're creating tons of benefit. But yes, I would love to get into the more exciting things down the road. Well, I think that point that you just made about how you're, what you're setting up is also, it sounds like it's creating kind of a inland safety barrier of sorts, but it's doing the work of, of growing the oyster, getting the flavor, uh, you know, filtering all of that goodness, but then you are helping the coastal environment of South Louisiana. Absolutely. I mean, the caveat to growing oysters is that they're edible. Like that's, they, they do so much, you know, their, their shells are made out of calcium carbonate. So all of the carbon emissions, oysters are resolidifying that into their shells. Um, it, it, I go on and on and I really like the restoration aspects of oysters more than even eating them because our coast is disappearing. And if we had oysters that were planted all around each island, you start creating living shorelines. Um, and even, like I say, if, whether it's on the bottom or on the top, fish follow structure. So there's lots of sheephead and triple tail and other fish that will just hang underneath our cages. I never have to buy a lure because all the fishermen are always casting their lines all around our cages, you know, so we go down a line and we just, we get lots of, you know, fish <laughs> tackle donated to us because that's, that's where the fish hang out, you know, so like you, you create that whole ecosystem, you know, from that cage. And little do they know you're like, Hey, fishy, come over here because you there's there, you have your own little aquarium underneath yeah. where you have your dinner too, right? Yeah. No, the fish will follow me down the line. As I go down the line, I flip the cages from one side to the other. Little crabs and, you know, shrimp will fall out. So it's you really feel like you're in an aquarium some days. They follow behind, you know, trying to get the table scraps. I love that. I love that so much. Well, you know, as we're we're thinking about this and you're you know, you have all this algae and you have all these things growing in the water. One of the other things that you introduced me to was um, this kind of like a seagrass that yeah. was super salty. It was I actually ended up dehydrating some and turning it into a powder and yeah. using it as flavoring. That, tell us about that. So, you know, you just got to survive down here. And when you get slammed by repeated hurricanes and don't have many oysters to sell, you just start kind of looking around. And I like learning about my environment anyway. So we found three succulents that grow on the island down here that are able to respire seawater. So there is the, the one that you were talking about, I think mainly is called salicornia or glasswort. And uh, it's more commonly called like a sea bean. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, some people call it even like a sea asparagus. It kind of looks like that. Um, it's really, really cool. It's just, I've never seen, it's very rare that you just get like new ingredients. 
And even people that are on the island and from here didn't know that like it was edible or it wasn't traditionally eaten. So I, I just find that, you know, incredible. So yeah, there's there's the, the, the sea beans, which dehydrated does make a really salty, umami rich powder. Um, it's kind of like a new age filet, you know, and that's what I kind of like about all of this stuff is it's, it's the new culture of Louisiana. And um, so anyways, that's, we got the salicornia, we have the sea purslane, which a lot of people are familiar with purslane, but the sea purslane has a salty flavor, you know, as well with these little purple flowers that are, you know, um, really nice and decorative. And then we also have sea blight, which is, it basically looks like a big, sexy rosemary bush. Okay. Um, and it, it has a lot milder flavor, but it does still have that, you know, that salty coastal, you know, flavor. So it's, nobody really knows exactly what to do with it yet. And I think that's fascinating when you can walk into a world-class chef and throw stuff on the table in front of them and he, he, what's this, you know? And it's like, well, this has been growing around us, you know, for years and years, but like, you know, what can you do with it? So we're still trying to figure out what to do with all of it, but it's, they're really cool ingredients. I always wonder, like, I would love to do a show where we find out who the first person, crazy person was who said, well, I think we should eat this oyster. Well, yeah. I think we should eat this sea bean because yeah. who was willing to take that risk on that slightly out of the ordinary thing and then identify that it's totally delicious? Well, I can tell you that since I started foraging for these sea greens, I've seen other plants that I thought would taste good and they did not. So <laughs> they, they were absolutely awful because you just start picking stuff and like we're just kind of munching along and I'm like, oh, what's this taste like? Ugh. You know, but um, yeah, I probably would have had I lived, you know, back in the days of the first people to eat oysters, I probably would have been one of those guys to try it. And for our listeners out there, you should always like Google it before you eat it. Yeah. <laughs> There's plenty of information out there. Don't don't be like me. Don't be like us where we just grab it and taste it and go, if yeah. I'm not here tomorrow, that's what did it to me. Yep. <laughs> well, so Scott, we just have a couple minutes left, but I want you to tell everybody how they can find you, how they can get your oysters, um, maybe who's carrying them locally, that kind of good stuff. So we're LouisianaOysters.com, Louisiana Oysters on all social media. Uh, we really do appreciate followers. Uh, the, 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 the customer base and friends and fans that we have has been what's carried us, you know, through the hurricanes. It's just an awesome sense of community that we have here in Louisiana, especially around the oyster culture. I, up until this year, I delivered probably 99% of all of my oysters to the restaurants myself. This year, I've partnered with JV Foods and they're distributing them. So they allow walk-ups, they do some home deliveries as well as deliver to restaurants. Um, and a lot of the, the typical restaurants, or I guess the restaurants that have, have carried our oysters for a long time. Um, I started out in Baton Rouge with Mansers on the Boulevard, French Market Bistro, Jolie Pearl. Um, but in the city itself, Sidecar Oyster Bar has been extremely supportive. They even did a fundraiser for us, you know, after the storm. 
Uh, Mac at Yonashi is ridiculous. Um, probably, probably fed me the best tasting oyster of mine I've ever had. <laughs> but um, you know, that's that, that's that's just a few. Um, yeah, follow us online and you'll see where they're where they're popping up. I try to post as many pictures from other chefs as as I possibly can. Well, I love it. For my listeners out there, you've been listening to Dinner Party with Chef Amy since. My guest today was Scott Maurer with Louisiana Oysters. You can check him out at louisianaoysters.com. Hit him up on Facebook, Instagram. Uh, JV Foods has them. Uh, we're big fans of JV Foods over at Langlois. So uh, I know that they only they pick really good products. So I'm glad that they uh, they have your oysters. For everyone who's been listening, you've been listening to WRBH Radio 88.3 FM. This is your host of Dinner Party, Chef Amy Sins. Until next time, ciao.